0: because this is the first of two episodes that were recorded live from the CPA Small Practitioners Forum in Banff, Alberta just a couple of days ago. And we were initially going to put everything into one episode, but we ended up chatting for about an hour and 20 minutes. And there was so much content that my guest and I decided, let's break it up. Let's separate it. Let's make it a little easier to digest. And so guess what? You get two episodes. I think you're going to really enjoy this. It's it's pretty cool because you can actually hear the crowd in the background. So we are legitimately doing this in front of a group of about 120-ish um, small practitioners, CPAs uh, practicing in BC and Alberta. And it was so much fun to sit there and have a live conversation, to get feedback from the audience, and to really be able to feed off of their energy. So I'm really excited to share this with you. The topic of our presentation was estate planning, and we were specifically talking about collaborative estate planning and the broader definition of what estate planning means. So it's not just a will, a power of attorney, and a healthcare directive. It is so much more than that. And my special guest, Yoss Herman, and I We both practice in a very collaborative way when we're working through estate planning with our clients. And so our goal for this presentation was to provide some tips and tricks to the advisors in the room when they're involved in files, things they can look for, some of the red flags that they should be aware of, and some tips as well as to how to become a bit more collaborative within their advisory community. And that was the purpose of today's presentation. I want to take a few moments to very quickly introduce my guest today, and, and Yas and I had never actually met in person until we met the day of our presentation at the conference, but I do feel like I've known Yas for a long time. I feel like our souls are connected, we are speaking the same language, and it was just such a delight to present this with her. Yas is a wealth and estate planner, and she has been providing wealth, tax, and estate planning for clients for many years. She partners with practitioners. She creates a team of professionals that are centered around the client. Yas has a bunch of memberships. Uh, She's a proud member of the Canadian Association of Gift Planners, the Canadian Tax Foundation, the Entrepreneurial CPAs of Calgary, Estate Planning Council of Canada, KALU, the Financial Planning of Canada, as well as STEP Canada. Uh, she's a very well sought out speaker. She's an industry professional and she speaks regularly and works regularly on issues of succession planning, asset protection, philanthropy. And she's really good at explaining the tools of the trade that are required for how to really design a plan for your client that's going to work. And so I'm very excited to share this conversation with you. So I would indicated that we we're going to be breaking down these episodes into sort of two digestible pieces. The first episode, the one you're listening to right now, is going to include a general introduction on what we think estate planning means. We're also going to touch on the concept of estate freezes, and we're going to touch on trusts. The next episode is going to cover shareholders' agreements, corporate-owned life insurance, Beneficiary designations and some sort of hot topics or red flags. If you're listening to this and you're not a CPA or an accountant and you're thinking, ah, I don't know if this really applies to me. I do encourage you still to listen to both episodes. We do try to provide some advice that's also helpful for you as a business owner, as a taxpayer. But probably episode 11 is going to be slightly more applicable to you because we'll start talking about some of the ins and outs of shareholder agreements and how you deal with governance issues, what happens if someone dies how you fund buyouts, how you make sure you have key men in place. Some of those more practical things we do discuss more in the second episode, and so that might be a bit a bit more suited to your interest. Nonetheless, really excited to release both these episodes, so I'm going to stop talking and I'm going to turn it over to the live episode. All right, well, welcome to an episode of the Tax Chick Podcast, the first ever live episode. I feel like I need one of those like, producers that's going around with a big sign that says clap and cheer and laugh. Thank you. <laughs> well, Yas, welcome. Thank you. It's the, today was the first day we've actually met in person. True. We've been, we've been yakking on the internet for a while, but had never met in person, so it's great to meet you. And before I get into the substantive part of any of my episodes, I always ask my guest two questions. And I was going to stop doing this, but then I, I selfishly want to know the answers, and so I, I'm going to do it today. So <laughs> my first question, Yoss, is uh, what is your favorite podcast or the last podcast you listened to?
1: Good question. So, um, I just told you, estate planning is all emotional. It's very much that way. Um, Amanda and I talk about death with our clients. I encourage you to uh, look at all there is with Anderson Cooper. He talks about grief. He talks about um, things that happen to families. And if you know anything about Anderson Cooper, he has a whole you know story about you know his family, who his mother was, etc., and how he dealt with that. So he brings on different people. And it really, truly kind of ties into uh, our world. So I'm sorry, it's not about tax, it's not anything financial, but it will sort of get you thinking and,
0: um, and maybe you'll cry too. <laughs> All right, well, here's, here's the next question. And we've texted a little bit, right. but there has not been a usage of an emoji yet. Nope. So I'm, I'm just wondering, Yas, when, when you text, what's your favorite emoji? Oh, okay.
1: I, I, I'm aged. I, I know how to text. I, can, I use the emoji. I, I think there's too many. I, I, my problem is I don't know which ones where I'm too excited to use it or not excited enough. So at the end of the day, I've created my own emoji. And so you kind of go, what does it look like? Are you in a suit or are you whatever? So if you've created your own emoji, it, uh, you know, it asks you, you know, what's the color of your hair? What's the color of your eyes? So here I go, I start creating. Do you want wrinkles? Okay, I'll put on a couple, sure. And then, <laughs> and then all of a sudden it says, well, what kind of clothes do you want to wear? and I'm like, okay, well, it gives you a list or pictures and it's like, well, there's a kimono. And I'm like, well, I don't wear kimonos, so I won't put that on. Um, I don't wanna put a suit, cause that's what I normally wear. So I have me in a hoodie and yeah, and I don't have as many wrinkles And then when I realized and when my net result was, I look like I'm a 16-year-old Yoss, like really (laughs) happy. So (laughs) I'm gonna stick with that and it kind of gives people a little bit of laughter.
0: Well, now I wish we had it. We could have put it up on the (laughs) big screen and you guys could have voted. Oh boy, all right, well, thank you. I always learn about a new podcast and I think it helps to expand our knowledge base to hear what other people that are similar thinking to us are, are also listening to. So in terms of moving on to the substantive part of today's presentation, we have a lot to tackle today and so Yas and I are going to do our best to kind of stick to time frames, But I wanted to give you a bit of an overview or a rundown of what we were hoping to accomplish So we want to talk about first what the phrase estate planning means and how it is more than just doing a will We also want to dive into some of the tools that advisors are typically using when doing estate planning. So I mean, we're gonna talk about estate freezes. I know everyone in this room knows about them, but we're gonna mention them. We're going to talk about the magical unicorn that is trust. Is it a unicorn or not? I, we'll, we'll discuss that. Um, we're also gonna talk about shareholder agreements or buy-sell agreements. We're gonna discuss corporate owned life insurance. And then we're gonna close off with kind of like a quick round of hot topics. Um, some things that you might be seeing in your files. Issues with non-residency. Um, joint beneficiaries, um, joint owners of property, uh, those kinds of of sort of topics that might be popping up and and some of our takes on it. And there's been some great conversation at the conference so far about those topics. So we'll try to tie in if we've heard about it already um, in the course of, of the session. So that is our big picture plan of attack. I think we should dive in. Okay, let's dive in. So we're gonna start with this general discussion of what is estate planning. And I know we all know what estate planning is, but I think that estate planning is more than just what I call the three-legged stool, the will, the power of attorney, and the healthcare directive. It is so much more than that. And so Yoss has kind of a, a really great analogy or, or way of thinking about it. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you.
1: Yeah, I, when I kind of was saying, well, things aren't transactional in our world. Um, when people say they want to do estate planning, they're like, okay, yeah, let's do it, etc." And we go, okay, well, let's, let's think about the things that we need to explore. What kind of assets do you have? What kind of liabilities do you have? You know, what's your family look like? So I kind of equate estate planning to, like, painting a house. And when clients say, okay, well, let's do it, um, things start to, you know, percolate uh, in terms of, well, you want to paint a house? That sounds great, so tell me more. And they go, Okay, well, um, the house is in Arkansas. Is that a problem? Okay, sure, we can paint a house in Arkansas, no problem, yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's like a, you know, there's a guard dog that, you know, that guards the house. Is that a problem? Okay, well, we can maneuver through that as well. Oh, and by the way, you know, the thing about painting the house, let's not tell my wife that we're painting the house. (laughs) So you know, so when I think about estate planning and those times of conversations we're having, it that's where I think some of the laughter comes out in our in our conversations because, again, clients think that well, you know, I don't have to tell you everything. Don't worry because it's just going to be numbers. Um, so that's why I kind of give that painting a house analogy at the end of the day.
0: Well, and keep in mind too that estate planning or. or I should start with things like wills, powers of attorney. It's all governed by provincial legislation. So to give you kind of that framework when you're working with clients, I mean, each province has its own legislation that governs how wills are made, the required formalities, and also governs what happens when someone dies and how you can make a challenge and who is a dependent. And so it becomes very province specific. However, very few of us have clients now who were born in one province, died in the same province. All their assets are in that province. All their kids are in that province. Uh, They run a business in that province. It just doesn't happen. There's there's a lot of, in particular, interprovincial movement. But there's also a lot of people with assets in the U.S., or I have clients with assets over in Europe, and how does that impact things? And so we will be making sort of some comments about about some of the residency issues or some of the things to keep in mind. We we are not um, U.S. tax practitioners. We are Canadian um, estate planners, and I'm a Canadian tax practitioner just going to say that out front but I do know enough to issue identify and so we'll try to point those things out for you but very important when you're working with clients because you'll find that you will have clients who are a bit mobile and therefore the rules um, even governing things like joint ownership of a piece of property well if you're jointly on title in Saskatchewan versus being jointly on title in BC that could mean two different things and the way that you do that registration might look different and so it's kind of important to understand those things. Yeah,
1: that's kind of a good summary. And I, and I think that the last comment I'll make is, in our world, we, we don't necessarily have checklists. Because people always ask me, what's your checklist and things like that. And, and I do, but sometimes when you're running through the conversation with the client, you want it to be as natural as it can be. You don't want the cl- you, to be hindered, did I cover off number two? Did I cover off number three? Um, so that's where I think a lot of the conversation we had uh, also in terms of this whole estate planning world. And I hope that gives some context.
0: So we thought we would start with a topic that is, I don't know, maybe near and dear to our hearts, maybe you don't feel that way, Um, but the topic of the estate freeze. And I feel like the phrase estate freeze, somehow clients have picked up on this. I don't know if it's like on Tim Horton's Coffee Row or where they found this out, but they'll come in my office and say, I think I need to do an estate freeze, Like, okay, who told you that? Well, my friend did one, and it seemed to go well for him. And so I think that it's a good topic to sort of start with, because I feel like it's one that there's a bit of an, well, there's an awareness of it, not necessarily knowledge um, by our client base, but there's a bit of an awareness. And it's one of the tools that we do see used quite often. Um, So we thought we'd just talk very briefly about, about estate freezes to sort of start things off.
1: Yeah, like, I mean, you think of what the estate freeze does. If I could have that laundry list, it basically comes down to, if you want a succession plan, and people tie those two things together, well, let's exchange your shares, and we'll give you preferred shares, and then we'll think about who those common shares are issued to. If I was going to put it in simplistic form, it's really just moving parts in your company, get, adding new people and new parties to your structure, and really, it, like from that technical standpoint, it's just restructuring, isn't it? Nothing more than that. But we make it seem like this is gonna solve everything for you. <laughs> oh my gosh, when you have an estate freeze, oh my goodness. And that's where I think some of the client discussion doesn't happen because um, maybe it's a, maybe it's the fault of the lawyers sometimes where they draft memos <laughs> and the <laughs> lawyers love memos. <laughs> and wow. <you> see, <laughs> And and Amanda, I think we have to give some context to the viewers that will listen to your podcast later. We have a bunch of accountants in the room. We do. We are talking to a group of accountants
0: who are well apprised on when an
1: estate freezes. Yeah. So I think that when you think about clients that want to do an estate freeze, it's trying to say, okay, if I want to bring my son or daughter whoever it is into the party, um, into my corporation, we can do that. And we all know we don't don't necessarily trigger tax to do that. So it sounds great for a client. I don't trigger tax. I can bring my son or daughter into the fold. Um, At the end of the day, I can freeze my tax liability. Wow. So the thing is, if I go back to the lawyer memos that happen, does it say that? Amanda, say, say no, it doesn't.
0: <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'm being attacked here on my own podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. No, it doesn't always say that. Yeah. And I think there's sometimes a lack of clarity in terms of the, the plan going forward. So I think that one of the things I've seen quite often, and, and I'm trying to be more cognizant of not doing it myself, is that often we put a plan in place like an estate freeze, but the client doesn't really realize what the ongoing plan is for the estate freeze. And then they might switch advisors and the new advisor doesn't necessarily know what the plan was. And so for example, if we have a whole bunch of preferred shares with a fixed value, well maybe our intent is to start redeeming those over time so that we have a smaller pool of preferred shares. But I've seen so many clients that come in and they've had an estate freeze done in it like 10 years ago and not a share has been redeemed. Um, so those kinds of connections or shares have been redeemed, but no one's documented them. And then there's no update to corporate registry to explain that that has to be done. There's that disconnect. And I think the other disconnect is is sometimes there's a misunderstanding about where the new growth is going to go. And so, I mean, we do in a estate phrase, as Yas mentioned, of course, for... For many different reasons one of which is sometimes to bring in the next generation but we have some clients who don't necessarily want to give up all of the growth and so even though we've frozen them they may still come back in for some of the new growth Um, but they may not understand that or they may not understand that their child is coming in for some of the new growth so just sort of understanding the dynamics and and making sure that even though we get it that we're communicating that to the client is, I think, huge because then they are doing the right thing on the front end versus us having to come in on the back end and undo <laughs> maybe incorrect payments or or document a whole bunch of things years after the fact because we don't like backdating and we shouldn't be doing that, right? So it helps us from having to do that cleanup.
1: I think where I was kind of going with it is that we do these estate freezes and we don't put together documentation that actually gives it simple language to it right? We, 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 we always put in our little brain of being an accountant or a lawyer and going, well, I'm going to try and make it as, you know, as linguistically as I can. And really what clients want is a one or two pager that says, this is what we tried to do for you. This is what the steps are. This is what's potentially going to happen. So, you know, any practitioner listening to the, in the room or, or um, online, I encourage you to do that. I, when I put together plans, I don't reference the Income Tax Act. It is shocking that I don't, but because I'm trying to tell the client, this is what we're trying to do. And then I leave all the paperwork, really, at the end of the day for the lawyer to sort of say, yes, here's all the uh, restructuring side of things. So maybe that'll also help, again, when when you think about why clients don't understand the structures they're in, especially when it comes to things like an estate freeze. They forget why they did the estate freeze.
0: Well, and, and I, I would say I, I do reference the Income Tax Act in yeah. my tax yeah. yeah. I'd probably get in trouble if I didn't, but I, I guess I'm coming at it from a different perspective. But I definitely have another document yeah. that is not the document that I give to the professional, yeah. um, but is either, we're either having a face-to-face meeting and I'm following up with an email, or there's some sort of a letter that is in English um, what's happening. And I am a huge picture person. So if you, if you know me, you know I have no background in math, or commerce or business, and somehow I'm a tax lawyer and, and it, I haven't been sued yet, like it's fine. I I, <laughs> I do know what I'm doing, um, but I do come at tax and accounting from a bit of a different perspective and often from the perspective my clients are coming at it from, because they don't often have that background either, and so I find pictures are such a strong and powerful way to communicate information. And I will have clients that will hold on to that picture, and they come back to the next meeting and they bring that picture. And they say, "Okay, you told me this box did this, and this box did this. And that's what I want. I think it's so important to be able to empower our clients to have that base knowledge of, I have three boxes. Here's what's in each box. Here's who owns each box and why. And they don't need to know what section of the Income Tax Act we've used or why we have a ten-page share exchange agreement or what all the forms are that we're filing with CRA, but they do need to know those basics. Yep, that's
1: and I think that's why you know it's good when we're connecting on this, because that's exactly the same approach. We we do the job that we're supposed to do to make sure we're all in the rules, but I don't I think we're doing a disservice to our clients of not adding that additional paper for ourselves or even if you were training staff who aren't in that estate planning world to sort of help them go, okay, this is what we're trying to do. And, and when the client knows their objectives and concerns, we revisit them. Um, so again, simplicity.
0: Well and maybe that maybe not a good transition. I don't know. I think it's an interesting transition to discuss trust because yeah. oftentimes we're seeing estate freezes be accompanied by the creation of trusts and the implementation of trusts. And so when Yoss and I were prepping for this, we said we have to talk about trust. And, and we don't want to talk about the new reporting rules because that's depressing, um, or, or all of that piece. We, we want to talk about some of the basics on trust and, and some of the things that we're seeing and, and how we can maybe guide the clients a bit better. But we thought we would start a bit by, by just making sure we have some foundational knowledge and, and perhaps more for the listeners of my podcast than for the people in this room. But in terms of what is a trust, um, who are the various actors in a trust? Because that becomes quite relevant. And then what different types of trusts are we usually seeing um, in estate planning? So I don't know, Yosta, do you want to cover any of that or do you want me to jump in? I think when,
1: you know, I've told you the story about the painting of the house. Um, when I do seminars or workshops or have cl- uh, discussions with clients, what I say in terms of your actors that you mentioned, um, here's how I put it. The settler is the one that, again, settles the trust. They're the one that kick-starts the trust for you. The trustee is the king or queen of the castle. All right?
0: Clients love that. Yeah. They say, can I be the trustee? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right?
1: And so then for the beneficial interest of your beneficiaries, the people that are eventually going to get your assets or whatever you've put into the trust. Um, and then, again, put it in a simple picture format with the triangle. So I, I guess that, that's how I approach it. That's the language I use. Is there different language that you that's, use? That's
0: similar, very similar language that I use. And I think it's, it's just really important to make sure everyone's on the same page about who those people are. Yeah. Because I find when we come to the end of a trust life and we're suddenly winding it up, there's so many times where someone says to me, oh, no, no, this person's a beneficiary and I'm looking at the trustee going, no, they're not. They're not in there. And now we have a whole other set of issues, right? But just knowing who those people are and knowing what some of the restrictions are, I mean, that settler stuff can't go back to that settler. We need to be very careful about that. We know that as a tax rule. Um, But kind of explaining those things to the client and those base words are also, I think, really important. So I think when we're thinking about trusts, it's not only just who the actors are, but it's also what the trust owns. So the other the other big thing that I see happen a lot is that clients still think they own all the stuff in the trust and I'm sure you've had this happen on files as well, where the client gives you this laundry list of their assets. And then, you know, I'm nosy. I kind of poke a little bit. And then I phone the accountant, and the accountant goes, yeah, no, they don't own that. It's in a trust. (laughs) So then I go back, and and the client says, I've told them this like 10 times. I said, well, I'll try number 11, see if it works. And so I'll go back to the client and try to explain, you don't own this anymore. So when you're doing your will, you can't tell me in your will that you want to leave these assets to person A, B, or C because you don't own them. And they said, but, but what do you mean I don't own them? I'm the king of the castle. I'm the queen. You told me that. And I said, well, you control them, but you don't own them. And so there's a different way to provide for those assets. There's different documents you have to prepare. And so I think that's really important, because clients often see everything under, under one umbrella, maybe not much different than how clients view corporate assets sometimes. Um, yeah. You know, they'll have five parcels of land in a company and, well, on my death, I want to give this parcel to this person and this person. No, you can't do that unless you wind up the company and then they look really sad at you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So just sort of identifying what is in the what is in the actual trust itself and who are the people that are playing these various roles in the trust.
1: I literally had to go through an exercise with a client where the estate freeze was done, had the family trust, all those things like that, and a majority of the ma- meetings were Exactly what Amanda's saying. This is who's going to get it. This is why. This is what the trust is. You don't own anything. And he literally kept going back to, well, I want this real estate to go to this one beneficiary because, again, he has a disability. And then that sparked a whole conversation on the other side. Um, so I, I really think that we need to put more pictures <laughs> together for our clients. Um, little ho- I put little houses and little commercial property inside these little pictures that I have to show them it's actually in this little corp or who owns the shares of that corporation and I put the triangle there. So it's it sort of, again, it goes back to that simplicity that we we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But that was like when he thought of estate planning, we we didn't get to the estate planning because he didn't even know what he had to begin with, mm-hmm. right?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, and I think too that for us as advisors to be to be tracking the 21 years for trust. I mean we know that we have that birthday every 21 years whether we like it or not and to start that planning a little bit before we get to the 21st year because again that's when we find the surprises of who the beneficiaries are and we also start to see how this trust has been used because I think sometimes the mechanics of the trust get lost a little bit in terms of how payments are working and in particular when we've got payments going from uh, you know the operating company up to a trust and then flowing over to maybe a holding company that maybe is a beneficiary of a trust. Well, have all the resolutions been prepared over time? Does that match the the elections and and the tax returns? So we just had an issue that we're trying to object to, but I think we fixed it in a backwards way where um, the wrong, the wrong payor was listed on a tax return. It was showing as the trust being the payer of a dividend as opposed to the operating company. <laughs> so CRA went in and assessed the, the income um, as opposed to just having it flow through tax-free. And so we had to go back and say, well, no, we have the resolution, we have the minutes of the trustees. This flowed through. It was just a typo on the tax return, and that's what got us there. But the client had no idea where the money was going. I mean, they they just knew eventually it landed in their other account. And so just to make sure that there's that connection that the legal documents are matching the accounting documents is so important. And I mean, I put this on lawyers as well. We have to double check that stuff um, because often we're the ones receiving instructions. And so if we're not making sure our documents match what's what we've been told to do, that can create huge issues for the client. I I think I wanted to add on to that
1: is because you said, well, there's a distribution, right? So, you know, a dividend gets paid or, you know, let's say, oh, the whole purpose of the trust was because we're going to multiply your capital gains exemption. Ah, there's another one, right? Where, okay. Clients remember that phrase. Oh, they do. There's so (laughs) many, whatever, you know, seminars and things like that Mm -hmm. saying this is what you can do. Okay. So you get to multiply your capital gains. You get to have different beneficiaries receive, you know, the proceeds, et cetera. But remember it's the beneficiary's proceeds, right? It's not yours. And there's that confusion of, oh, well, no, my kids will just give me the money back. (laughs) And Amanda can tell you, like, there's court cases about that. There's court cases that say, no, no, that
0: check goes to them and it's not yours. You have no right to get that money back. And and it's quite a shock. I'm sure some of you have been in that scenario where you've had to now tell the client, by the way, you need to pay your kid at least like $500,000 or whatever they're trying to use at the time, and, and no, they can't pay it back to you, and and you get this puzzled look. But you said, well, yeah, but there's still something that has to get paid. So just that connection, I think, is very important. And I mean, we've been talking a bit about, you know, intervivos vivos trusts, yeah. uh, which is, I think, what we're, we're often very familiar about. And And the one thing that we thought we would maybe very quickly touch on is that there are other types of trusts, that are available, and the one that that I see pop up a lot is is once someone's passed away and there's trusts in a will, not just a generic testamentary trust, but um, you know Henson trusts, if you've heard that phraseology, um, or or trust for planning for long term dependency, and I think it's important to remember that when those types of trusts are being used, there are different requirements. And it's important for the client to know that there's different requirements than a standard trust, that when you have a Henson trust that you're using to help to support someone with a long-term dependency that's maybe receiving social assistance benefits, you have to be pretty careful what the terms of that trust are and who is the trustee of that trust and who gets the balance of the trust property once the original individual has passed away. We don't have that same level of flexibility as we would with a standard discretionary trust. And so these, each of these different types of trusts just have different requirements and good to go back to basics sometimes to remember what those are. The other ones that, so if we break it down between the intervivos ones, I'm
1: living, and that's where you've got those family trusts that we're so used to, et cetera. Um, we can't sort of forget those life interest trusts. Mm-hmm. So again, lovely terminology um, where I go, okay, I can create this alter ego trust, right? If I'm over the age of 65, and I can put assets in there into this trust. And I don't have to trigger any tax in doing that, right? Any practitioners doing that? And and when you think about why would I use a trust like that, well, if you think about provinces that are high probate provinces, it's a great way to do that. So they talk about it to save probate, Mm -hmm. but I will tell you fundamentally, and maybe that's where we should have started, think about what a trust does. It protects assets, right? It's an asset protector, fundamentally. It gives control. Mm-hmm. It does give flexibility, I will say, right? Because, again, if I choose to have one beneficiary maybe remove them, uh, aside, you know, that, that can be done. Um, it, it has that sort of holding pattern that I think for clients to go, okay, right now I want the trust to hold things, and then I can decide if you get it later or when you get it later b- based on the trust deed. Um, so I think fundamentally those ones that are inter they, they serve a purpose, but we have to make sure we, the client understands why we're doing it. It's not just for tax. Um, things like alter ego trusts, mm-hmm. they're used for confidentiality.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Like, how many of your clients go, I don't want George to know what I own when I die? Oh, can you imagine? so think about it. I can go down to the court office,
0: mm-hmm.
1: Amanda passes away, hey, Amanda, what did you have when you passed away? Mm-hmm. I, can, I can pay a fee and get her will. I can, I can see what goes on in there, right? Um, so things like alter ego trusts provide that confidentiality for clients, and you know you've got high net worth clients that you don't want the neighbour to know what they had, etc. So I think that fundamentally we have to go back to about it's not just about the tax planning mm-hmm. side. It's about other attributes that are actually more important.
0: Yeah, there are definitely pros and cons to trust, and I feel like since the changes to testamentary trust rules and then since TOSI came in, we've all had more of a negative opinion on the use of trust than we did before because we think, oh, so many of the great tax benefits have been stripped away. But to be truthful, I think the majority of the reason why we're actually putting these trusts in place now is completely unrelated to tax. I mean tax might be a nice benefit and I'm not just making like a gar argument here <laughs> like I'm a tax litigator so it's like no, there is no tax benefit yeah. um, but we're also doing it for for these non-tax reasons, these soft reasons that we know about and and I think the alter ego trust is a great example of that. I mean yes there's limitations you have to be over 65 to do it. Um, it's not really I mean it's tax it's non-taxable to transfer into the alter ego trust. You don't fix the tax problem on death with an alter ego trust. There's still that deemed disposition on death. There's still the biggest yard sale of your life, I like to call it, right before you die. (laughs) That still happens. But you don't have this full disclosure on a court file of all of your assets. And I was chatting with a lawyer in Alberta. I practice in Saskatchewan. Um, a couple of months ago, they'd asked a question. They had a client who was having to file probate in Saskatchewan, and a request had come from the lawyer for um, information on an insurance policy that had a named beneficiary. And the Alberta lawyer was kind of like, well, what business is that of yours? And I said, well, actually, in Saskatchewan, we have to show that stuff on a probate application. And I learned that apparently you don't in Alberta. So, that's cool. Um, In Saskatchewan, we have to give everything. And so someone can go there and not only do they see your stuff, but they see how much your stuff is worth. I mean, that makes it even worse. The values are sitting there. They see if you have debts, they see who you owe money to. And so we have so many clients that want to have that privacy, um, that this is a great way to accomplish that.
1: Yeah. And, and maybe the other one, maybe when we talked about wills as well is in, in Alberta, I think we don't necessarily do that. I think it's a lot. Of, we see a lot more in Ontario's, a lot more in BC of using the alter ego trust. Um, when we think about double wills, we've all heard of that, right? So this opportunity to say, if I own corporate shares and I'm in a high probate province, I have the opportunity to have one will that deals with that, and then a secondary will that deals with the other stuff, like the house, etc. And you kind of go, well, which one do I choose? You know, Amanda just said about the alter ego trust, and I mentioned it, do I do a, a, a double will scenario? It depends on the client. Mm-hmm. It depends on how many executors are available in the planning because you do need two separate executors when you're dealing with double will planning. And so I know when sometimes when we're looking at ex- who the executors could be uh, or who the beneficiaries are, there's a lot of people going, I don't know who i trust right because you need some financial aptitude being an executor now being a trustee etc so it's not just i'm going to pick and and again the question was you know how many accountants are asked to be the executor Mm -hmm. ah like do you want to be in that role yeah no (laughs) (laughs) so you know that i we kind of wanted to explore just some options with you if you have clients that like the opportunity for maybe some tax savings let's Mm -hmm. call it uh, but also more of the privacy side of things. I don't have to probate one will, and I can probate the other. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of that other option that
0: you can explore with clients. Which unfortunately does not work in Saskatchewan, because <laughs> they make you tell them everything. Yeah. I don't know why, but we do. <laughs> yeah.
1: yeah, and that jurisdictionally is, is frustrating. Mm-hmm. So when clients, that Tim Horton comment you made? Yeah. Oh, well, you know, I talked to my brother John in, yes. in Ontario. Well, that's nice. Like, way different rules than what we have. They don't even call it probate in Ontario, right? It's a state administration tax. So, I mean, even that terminology makes more sense, I think, from probate.
0: Well, I wonder if we should finish off trust by just addressing Two things, like yeah. two sort of maybe warnings or red flags. Yeah. And I was thinking we could talk about association and yeah. then residency. Do you yeah. want to start with association?
1: Yeah. So um, you know, let's go back to our classic example. We've got the estate freeze. Well, I'm not going to issue common shares directly, probably to the son or daughter, right? There's whole, you know, they can be exposed from a marital standpoint, creditors, etc. So logically, you have the discussion with Amanda. Well, let's have the family trust own those shares of that corporation for those common shares. And so the discussion, what I noticed in a lot of the situations is tell me about the son, daughter, whoever it is. Who, who are these beneficiaries? Are they entrepreneurial kids, right? So these kids end up being like their parents and they end up saying, well, I'm going to own a company myself. So remember, when you've got beneficiaries and you've named the son or daughter, etc., cetera, and they've gone on to be the great entrepreneur that they've sort of followed in your footsteps, now we have things called association rules, right? Very simply, now you gotta share that small business deduction, right? And when I think of my planning and I think of these conversations I have, it's not just with mom and dad, and I'm just gonna use that loosely. What, what are the kids doing? Do they have their own corporations, etc.? Because I
0: don't want them getting caught in association rules at the end of the day. And we're seeing that way too often. The other one I'm seeing, and maybe this is a Saskatchewan thing, is that you have farm families that live near each other, and their kids start dating, and they get married, (laughs) and each farm family has a family trust, and their kid's a beneficiary, and then one day, somebody's out and about, and they run into, like, one dad runs into the other dad, and some conversation starts, and they realize they've just associated their two family corporations, Um, so that one happens as well, and so trying to sort of... Give the clients that trigger of if your clients don't have their, or if your, if your clients' kids don't have their own company now, but they do in the future, or they marry someone who is a spouse who has a company and they become a part of it, or if they start marrying into another family that's entrepreneurial, those are all red flags to come and talk to, to you before it happens. Because as long as we pull the person out before the event happens, we're okay. But if they come to you a year after the marriage or a year after the company's been created, well, we have association. Like, we can't go back in time and pretend it didn't happen. So I find clients are pretty good if you give them that warning that they'll often phone me and say, Amanda, you told me to phone you if my kid creates a company, but I don't remember why. Is that a bad thing? Should I tell them not to do it? And then we have the discussion about what our options are. So... Good to remember, and then I was gonna very briefly just flag non-resident issues. So again, just to kind of remember that sometimes we operate in that bubble where we think all the beneficiaries are going to be Canadian residents because the parents are, so we think we're good to go. Um, But if we have non-resident beneficiaries, big red flags um, in terms of options that are now available. And so very important to flag that for the clients as well in case we have kids that go non-resident at a later date or in case someone thinks not to bother telling you because they think it's not relevant, right? Well, they might say, I have no intention of giving my kid anything for the next five years anyway, so who cares if they're resident in the U.S.? Well, I still care. Um, it's still relevant. I want to know. And so those are. that's another big trigger that you want to keep in mind. It's a good one because it goes back to what's G1? So
1: I say that's generation one, mom and dad, the Marthas and the Georges. And then again, what's G2 doing, right? Um, are they going to come back to Canada? All those kind of historical things with the kids. Um, so it's a great point because our planning, I'll say more gets more restrictive, mm-hmm. right? Um, and we don't get, want to get our clients caught in these tax rules that we could have avoided, right? Let's be honest.
0: Well, that is all we have time for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. I hope we gave you some food for thought or at least made you laugh. Please see the show notes for any resource material that we referenced throughout the episode and to find out more about my amazing guest today. And if you'd like to learn more about any of the topics that we covered on today's podcast or about other topics relating to tax in general, I do invite you to sign up for my monthly newsletter, Musings of a Tax Chick and follow me on Instagram. My handle is at tax.chick. If you enjoy this podcast, I would really appreciate it if you could leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and also click subscribe so you make sure you never miss a new episode. Please note that the views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this podcast episode belong solely to the speakers and are not necessarily the views of the speaker's employer, organization, committee, or other group or individual. In addition, the information provided and discussed in this podcast is not legal advice. We encourage you to consult with your legal advisor for specific advice.